Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast with your host, David McIntosh. This week's guest needs no introduction, but for the three of you who don't know who this fella is, today I am recording with Example, a two times number one UK charts artist, notably known for his songs Stay Awake and Change the Way You Kiss Me. He has been a celebrity in our sphere for over 15 years. He's been touring most years and has surpassed the longevity of all his peers that he came up with when he had his number ones. But why? Learn from Elliot the ups and downs of superstardom, how he's found harmony in the chaos, his most ridiculous purchases, a reflection on Ed Sheeran and examples Nando's skank, an example uncovers the truths about the dark side of fame. I won't lie, example is such a gent and a hilarious dude. We got on really well in this episode and we even crack a laugh about Glasgow and Iron Brew. They say never meet your heroes, but I think that's bollocks. Elliot was such a kind, kind guy. He invited me and all my mates to watch him perform and hang out with him at the O2 in Glasgow at his sold out show. You're really going to get a taste for his generosity, authenticity and humility. If you love this episode, send him a message, give him a follow, buy his tickets to his tour and reach out to me. Please give this a share on WhatsApp group chats. Remind your cousin or your auntie that he's touring and bathe in the nostalgia by sharing this with your mates. You stopped by in beautiful Glasgow, so if you want to watch this in beautiful 4K, jump onto YouTube, search The Development by David Podcast and watch it there. But wherever you listen to this, please hit subscribe. But now, I get to have 60 minutes with a hero of mine, Example. Oh, and quickly, before we get into the show, I must give thanks to our sponsors this week. Vibe's back! You know me, I use this product before every mental and physical endeavour. And you can too. Elevate your mental and physical well-being with Vibe's Brain Care Smart Range and their Lion's Mane Mushroom. Genuinely the only essentials that you need for cognitive health and well-being. I've been using their Brain Care Smart Greens, specifically their travel packs, whilst on the go. You've seen me in and out of London and I've been elevating my wellness game with this product. It's genuinely a powerful blend designed to revitalise and nourish my body, especially when I'm on the go. It's packed with potent ingredients to enhance my brain function, improve my sleep when away, support my immune system, increase my concentration, and just relieve stress. You just have to simply mix it with water or put it into a smoothie for a natural vitality boost. I've also been using that in tandem with their Lion's Mane Mushroom, and you can too unleash your potential with their Mushroom Powder, a natural cognitive enhancer known for its brain-boosting properties. And if you're tired from the crash you get from coffee, try their coffee alternative, Brain Care Smart Focus. It has reishi, shaga, and lion's mane mushroom, as well as cordyceps to improve your energy and focus. It also improves maca root and turmeric, vitamin B, and many other ingredients that are designed to boost your brain support, digestive support, and energy support. If these benefits sound good to you, head along to vibe.co.uk if you're based in the UK, or vibe.co.au and use code D by D, that's D by D, for 15% off site-wide. And introducing our other sponsor, Zero Gravity, ran by previous guest, their CEO, Joe Seddon, the 30 under 30 Forbes sensation. In a world where social mobility seems like an uphill battle, there's one platform that is breaking barriers and changing lives. Introducing Zero Gravity, where the power of technology meets the potential of untapped socially mobile talent. With millions of pounds in funding from visionary investors, Zero Gravity is not just a platform, it's genuinely a lifeline. From mentoring to masterclasses, 
internships to scholarships. Zero Gravity is backed and packed with features designed to take talent to the very top. If you're a student, join their digital community of over 15,000, all working together to make their ambitions. Zero Gravity, more than a platform, it's a value-driven movement, powering people to tackle the UK's biggest challenges. Join the movement today, visit zerogravity.com and unlock your potential. Elliot, welcome to the Development by David podcast and welcome back to Glasgow. How are you, mate? Say it again. The, the, the Development by David podcast. I like that. I like that. So many syllables, mate. Yeah, they do, especially in Scottish. It's extra, <laughs> it's extra fun. Um, if some Americans listening, they don't know what. Are they Dutch? Um, it's great to be here. Welcome back, man. What do you make of Glasgow? It's probably one of my favorite places in the world. Um, I love the city. love the architecture. I love the food scene. I love the fashion scene. I love the art scene. Love the people, best crowds, easily the best crowds in the world. I'm not just saying that. I don't say that. I don't go to Birmingham and say this. <laughs> um, nothing wrong with Birmingham. I'm just, you know what I mean? I think, yeah, my favorite city. I live in Brisbane. I love that place. And I love Barcelona. I love Prague. I love Berlin. And I love Glasgow a lot. That's probably my top five cities. What do you think it's about the Glasgow crowd that you liked? They are just always up for it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes maybe too, too up for it. Like, you know what I mean? The response that I get, say, like my set, it's usually 75 minutes to 90 minutes, depending on how my legs and my voice is feeling. And I try to put a show on where it just increases the energy ever so slightly. So by the time at the end, it's this absolute pandemonium. You know, so like Change the Way Kiss Me is at the end of the show. And then we have confetti and lasers and sometimes like fire cannons. And it's just like, <laughs> Whereas you come to Glasgow and the first song, they react like the last song in other cities. You know what I mean? So I come on stage and I'm like, and then the drop comes, I'm like, let's have it. And everyone goes absolutely like, like they react like it's the last song. And that's the first one. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, you guys really need to chill out. Because, <laughs> yeah. And it's just, this, I mean, we did Edinburgh in August for around the fringe and sold 3000 tickets in about two days. And I think the majority, it was probably a third of the crowd of 16. And then obviously every age in between, like right up to people in their 60s and 70s. But it's mad to think like the Scottish just go mad for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe I was Scottish in another life. I mean, I do <laughs> love Scotland. I've always, I've played here about 50 times. I've been coming here since 2005, um, where I supported Plan B at King Tut's. That was my first gig in Scotland. Played every venue, even all the ones that were closed down. I played the, I've not played the Hydro, I've played the SECC a few times. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just something about Glasgow that feels a bit like home. You know what mm. I mean? Like I've, I've already had about 15 selfies this morning. I was only out on the street for 20 minutes. And people just come over and put their arm around you like you, you went to school with them. And you don't really get that. You get that with the Irish. You get that in Dublin. You don't really get that anywhere else. People are, it's quite a different culture up here. And, and yesterday you were in the same gym as me, and I saw like my best pal came round for a. Well, selfie. you sorted the free gym out. That's <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, let's not make out it was a random meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, sorted yeah. me a free gym pass, which I'm very appreciative of. And I could just see people in the gym just staring at you, but not in a kind of like violent kind of way. It was more like I recognise that I love guy. That, I love there's a violence disclaimer because <laughs> we're in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Every Scots accent comes with disclaimer of violence, mate. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there was something about, I don't know if it's your authenticity online or maybe your lyrics that make you just seem like a normal bloke opposed to this kind of like superstar on a pedestal. I think I th it's a bit of both. Mm. I don't know. Like, 
What was you going to say? Sorry, I cut you off there. I'm just, I'm just, sorry. just saying how like authentic you are and how people just treat you as a best mate, opposed to this kind of superstar on a pedestal. I think it is because of your yeah. lyrics and just how you present yourself. Yeah, I've always, yeah. To be honest, like now, also I've been around a long time now. I mean, it's coming up like two decades. I've probably only really been famous for maybe like properly for like twelve years, but I've been making music for almost two decades. Um, you know, as a trying to make money out of it, not just as a hobby, and. People, generally speaking, just call, go, all right, Elliot. You know, they, 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 maybe it's because my my song's quite conversational. My The way I write songs is almost like, it's like I'm talking, you know, whether I'm rapping or I'm singing. What I mean is the tone is very uh, conversational and chatty. And there's lots of, um, there's lots of like, words in there and phrases, which are just like how you chat to your mates. It's not like written like poetry, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's written like an anecdote. Um, or an explanation of what's going on in your head. You know, if you make it, it's like, how are you feeling at the moment? Like when you listen to Kickstarts, it's almost like me just pouring my heart out to my mate about how I feel about a girl, rather than worrying about the, the constructs of it and going, this needs to go down as one of the all time greatest songs of all time. You know, I don't, I don't think like that. I don't overthink words. I just say what comes into my head. And I think as a result, you're right. People maybe feel they know me because how many people talk about um, you know, like relationships and, um, you know, a, a addiction and, you know, self-loathing or depression or being in love or wanting to have kids with someone. All these things that are topics that some people are afraid to talk about or some people talk about but maybe not so literally. And my stuff is like, you know, like on kickstarts, you get a lyric like, I don't know, get high, get wandering eyes. Very much like, Basically saying, I go out and drink too much and do too many drugs and I start looking at other girls. That's in a song. And I've written it about my ex-girlfriend at the time, my girlfriend at the time. But so, And then she's hearing that and her family's hearing that and everyone's going, what the fuck? And then fans are hearing it and then blokes are hearing it and going, oh, I relate to that. And women are hearing it and go, oh, my ex-boyfriend was like that. And some artists, they try and be really clever with these. So they instead of saying, get high, get wandering eye, they'd use a euphemism for getting high. Mm -hmm. And instead of wandering eye, they try and be really clever, you know, and, and stuff like fucking Shakespeare or something, I don't know, some language we don't understand. I'm just very literal. And I think, yeah, I, I, just before I walked in here, these two lads came up and they were just like, oh yeah, <laughs> I got a photo. Just straight in my face, hand around my shoulder. And then what I love about up here as well is like, you say, oh, you coming to my gig? And they go, oh no, I'm not coming to your gig, just what a photo. <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> so we've got to love the honesty. And you, sometimes you get that, like people shout across the street, like in Dublin as well. See, it's maybe it's a Celtic thing, but they're like, <laughs> just like, example, they're like, you're right. They're like, I'm not a fan. I was just saying good morning to you. <laughs> you know, I just, I know who you are. I don't want a photo. I don't like your music. Have a good day, example. You know what I mean? Thanks a million. And you're just like, I love that. Maybe I love that people think they can just talk to me like that. I think it's great. What's that like in London? Can you jump on the chip? Um, weirdly, I don't know if it's because London's maybe spoiled with recognizable people or if Londoners are just a bit more serious and stuck up and focused, you know, so maybe they've got a bit more of a front on or they're trying to keep themselves to themselves. But generally speaking on tube, people don't look around the tube looking at people, do they? Mm. Um, it's quite a weird place, London, like that. Everyone's maybe like just in the, in the rat race in the zone, just keep themselves to themselves. There's too many people, it's overcrowded. But London very rarely have selfies. I mean, they do get recognized, but considering there's what, 12 million people or something, um, and it's sort of like London has 20 city centers, doesn't it? 
like every other city has one city center. London's got like 20. I, I tend to just, when I'm in London, I stay in Fulham where I live and I don't really leave because London just feels like a stress. Mm. Whereas I go Glasgow, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, walk around town. It's like, it's nice because don't forget, firstly, fame, meeting people is part of the job. You know what I mean? You signed up for it. You signed up for this. So anyone who complains about it, I've never understood. Um, you know, if the reason paparazzi get obsessed with people is probably because you invited them into your life in the first place, or you know, you, you know, they're like they're like rats, aren't they? They're like crack fiends, paparazzi. It's like you know, you give them a little taste. You know, come and photographs on the beach, come and photographs on holiday. We're just leaving the hospital on you, baby. You give them that. They just want to keep chipping away. They want more. They want more crack. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't really ever understand people who complain about paparazzi. I mean, obviously there's unique cases like Princess Diana, which are completely different, but I, I'm not going to name names, but there's people I was making music with 10 years ago who now aren't on the circuit anymore. And a lot of them hate that they're not recognized anymore. Whereas at the time, like, fucking, oh God, people won't leave me alone. Why are these people filming me eat? I mean, it is weird to film someone eat their dinner, but I know people who've complained about being famous and having to stop for photos and sign things. And now they miss it. What's what? I think it's amazing that someone every day, like I'm like, I live in Australia. I don't really get bothered too much. Maybe because I live there and everyone knows me. But um, I, can't, I look forward to coming to Glasgow and Manchester and just going, I'm going to be out today and I don't know what nutters I'm going to be. <laughs> you know, someone's just going to be like, hey, example, how's it going? Oh, I love you, man. I love your music. It's, it's such a huge lift that people, you know, music, your songs have made someone's life richer or my gig has given them an amazing memory. So if that, and I, I think you can make these meetings nicer for you as well by just taking their phone off them, putting it on selfie mode, snap, hand the phone back, bye. Otherwise people just can't get the words out. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot what I was gonna say now. Um, oh yeah, oh, I love you. Oh, anyway, I don't know if this podcast is about that. <laughs> I love it, mate. And I think it's because you've been around for so long and people have seen you on your journey because your music and lyrics are so expressive of what you're going through at the time. Mm. So people almost feel like they know you, of course, of, uh, over the course of like 20 or 15 years, you know? Um, so perhaps that's why they have that genuine interaction with you. I remember I listened to an interview of yours like 20, 12 years ago, perhaps, and you say that you make music for the everyday man or yeah. you aim to make music for the everyday man. And I think yeah. you come across given the fact that you do all these interviews as still an everyday man, despite having the glitz and glam of being a rapper. Yeah, I mean, a rapping, singing sensation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't mean, I, I think when I started out, I was more like a rapper. I think I don't really mind what people call me, to be honest. I Performer, think, probably. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I'd rather be remembered. For, I mean, I'd love to be remembered for whatever, but I never really go out there and go, people are going like, the best rapper ever, or he's the best singer. But I would just love it if people go, he puts on the best gigs ever. That's kind of what I strive for. I mean, some people want to be the best rapper, the best singer, the best performer, and look beautiful and, you know, write the best songs. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look my best and sound my best and write the best songs possible, but I really want to be remembered or known for the best gigs. Mm. Like, that was the best night of the year. Or, you know, I fell in love that night with music, or I fell in love with my partner because of the music, you know, something like that. But... uh I think, you know, when I was on Mike Skinner's label, um, The Streets, we was on a, Mike from The Beats, we was on a, his label called The Beats, me and Professor Green and the Mitchell brothers about 2006 for about three years. And he was the biggest act in the country at the time. Like, there were many people bigger than him. Maybe like the Arctic Monkeys were bigger. 
um, and Muse. But other than that, he was like the biggest act, band, rapper, whatever. And his first and second album were all talking about everyday stuff, going to the calf, having a fight. Uh, not that you should have a fight every day, unless you're in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, being in love, uh, smoking weed, going to the kebab shop, getting on the train. And his first and second album were all about that. And then his third album, I think, called The Hardest Way to Make an Easy Living, I think. Don't comment on that. Check it. Google it. That album was all about fame and fortune, and it flopped. It's a great album. There's some great songs on there. I actually sing on a few of them, like backing vocals, like random uncredited features. But there's some good tunes on that album, but it is all about the excesses of gambling and drugs and women and the music industry. No one can relate to that. Other artists can, which is why I think the album's amazing. But it's um, that was a real lesson, I think, maybe for him, but also for everybody else who, you know, because Mike Skinner influenced so many people like Lily Allen and mm -hmm. Amy Winehouse and Alex Turner, all these people were writing everyday lyrics, by, you know, influenced by Mike and everybody from my generation as well, whether that's, you know, Kano or Professor Green or Plan B, everybody borrowed a little something of how Mike told stories. And I just think the big lesson to everyone was just never talk about fame and excess in that way. You know what I mean? There's like, there's smarter ways to talk about excess. Like if you're going to do it, maybe like, um, you know, Anthony Kiedis, for instance, the way he talks about drug addiction isn't so literal. Um, and there's, 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 there's other ways to talk about dealing with fame without actually mentioning dirty words, mm. like millions or, you know, these things that most people Cars, can't. Cars, watches, ace, etc. Exactly. Um, and I think there's a certain thing about being a rapper where there's a lot of bravado. So every rapper has to have a find what their thing is going to be. So, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it can be uh, guns and drugs and women i nearly said a bad word then but i'm a feminist but you know what i mean <laughs> some rappers have that and that's based on their upbringing and where they're from and it's it's legit someone like me there's no, no reason you can't rap because you know you're a white kid from fulham but uh, you have to find your voice so what are the things that i can talk about that make me come across as relatable also retain a bit of an edge so young kids look up to you and oh that's fucking cool you know that, the way he said that so I think there's a, there's a balance in finding those things. Mm. Thinking about the rap industry, I think about someone like Meek Mill, for example, who talks about the Bugattis or the Lamborghinis or whatever else. And we think about their upbringing where they grew up in a ghetto somewhere where they had none of these things. Mm. And I feel like it's some sort of like peacocking mechanism or like status symbol to show off that I came from X and now I have all these things. Yeah, of course. And it's almost like they have to showcase this material desire before they can ever get rid of it. I think, I think it's partly that, but also I think if you grow up with nothing, and you come, you know, whether you're working class council state in the UK or you're ghetto in, you know, in, in the US, especially if you're a person of color or you're black, whatever, if you're, I, I think a lot of the time it's like, it, it can be a quite a depressing existence for people. So to make them feel better and so to remind themselves that they don't, that they aren't worthless, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of people have spoken down from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, backgrounds if you work all week and then spend that on a pair of trainers or a bag or a hat or a jacket, that makes you feel fucking good. So all of a sudden it's a fuck you to all the people who are trying to make you feel worthless or have tried to make you feel like a lesser human from the moment you were born. So that's where I think the sort of the, the, the clothing, jewelry, cars, 
thing comes from that mentality. I mean, there, I'm sure there are some individuals who are just want to show off because, you know, it's human nature. And then there's others who I think it's more just like uh, a sense of self-worth. And, you know, luckily for me, I grew up as a, as a white man in, in, in this world. So I have never really had to worry about that self-worth in the, in the same way that some other people had. You know what I mean? I wasn't made to feel like a lesser human. I'd, I'd equal opportunities at school and in employment and I was never harassed by the police. Yep. So for me to come into rapping, which is a, a black culture, obviously you've got to be respectful to that, nod to that. And, you know, I've always tried to support black artists or on tour supporting me or on tracks where possible, because that's just something I kind of naturally do, I guess, because of the school I went to. I don't, it's not really something I wake up and go, I have you to do this have to today. Think of it, yeah. You don't have to think of it. And then, but then now looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, that was, you know, did this, this person and so on and so on. Because but you're surrounded by it. It was like, the, it was normal yeah, to you, right? it was like my school it was just like a big melting pot of cultures. But I think it is quite interesting to then, you know, I, I, I've got all my favorite lyricists and rappers, like J. Cole and Jay-Z and Biggie Smalls. But I was more interested in them, you know, Wu-Tang. I was more mm. interested in them I guess for the wordplay and then the punchlines and the metaphors and the way that they ride the beat, that was an influence on me. But then again, you have to be so smart about telling your own story. Some people become, you know, Ziggy Stardust or Plan B become Strickland Banks and you have a concept album because you're a, you know, that, that, that's what that, that story is or that moment, it's almost like a film. You have to become this other person and channel all these different energies. But for me, I've always just been Elliot. So everything has to just be real to me. So everything I say in a song is something I've experienced or something I've felt at some point, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that way I don't ever have to put on an act and, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough since birth with what, uh, you know, what body I was born into, what skin color I was born into. Like, where I guess, you know, you, you, you're already starting ahead of a lot of other people um, who then have to find their identity in a different way to what I did. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I guess with your story, your parents were born working class. So you saw them almost transcend classes, perhaps. And you saw that upwards mobility is predicated based on your own impact or yeah. your own meritocracy or work. Yeah, my mum and dad both worked, they both came from nothing and they both worked extremely hard to get to where they've got to. You know, my dad moved to Australia in his 50s and retired. And he, I've spoken about it in loads of podcasts before. So I won't go into his upbringing specifically, but, um, or my mum's, they, they both had a really tough time. And they were both working at a very young age. I think maybe a lot of people were in like the 1960s, you know, in post-war Britain, uh, which I still was, I guess was post-war at that time, but in terms of like, you know, society and the economy still try, trying to sort of level itself out. But my mum and dad were both working, I think at the age of 12, 13. I'd like a few jobs. It's mad. Same as, um, same as mine. And, I don't even think you can legally work now at that age. <laughs> You'd probably get investigated <laughs> for employing a 13-year-old. But um, yeah, they, you know, as you get older and then I would go and get, do jobs myself at like 14, 15, maybe it was like painting with my uncle or doing some laboring on a building site or I had a few little jobs in shops and so on. But you realize, you're like, oh, wow, I've just worked for an hour and I've earned 11 pounds or something. And then you go, I've worked all weekend and I've only got this. And this is only going to buy me a pair of jeans or a pair of nice designer jeans. So I think it's good to instill the value of money into kids. 
You know, I don't know what my kids are going to do because obviously they're going to come from a, a an environment of money and wealth, up you know, in terms of upbringing. I think there's something that only thing you can do is like, I'm often you read about other you know rich celeb parents and look, I'm not worth millions and millions. I'm like I'm not somebody's you know like where they go. What does Jeff Bezos' kids do? What the, <laughs> not that I'm you know I'm I'm comfortable, but at the same time you have to be like. Maybe you say to your kids, go and get a job. And they're like, why? Why should I get a job? I think it's more a case of going, well, if you go and earn 200 pounds, I'll give you another 100. Mm -hmm. Or, you know. Didn't your dad do that for you when you went to uni? Yeah. Wow, you've done your research. Yeah, I think my dad was basically like, whatever you earn this summer over like 12 weeks between college and university, I'll give you the same again. So I think I earned a baby three, four grand or something. And, and then he paid for my um, accommodation at university. Which I'm really thankful. Well, I don't say my dad, my mum and dad. Um, they're a team. <laughs> um, they, yeah, I uh, was able to go to university and then finish university without any debt and student loan. But I did work all summer, every summer. Like everybody else was off on holidays or just chilling, playing football and drinking, and I was working Monday to Friday for the every summer holiday between uh, university terms. I always try and draw correlations and sometimes there might be false correlations between like a kid's upbringing and how they are now, but you tour every single year perhaps or on a Yeah, I basis. do like a headline tour around the UK and Ireland every like two years now. It used to be every year, sometimes twice a year. And then I do festival runs every year around UK, Europe. And then I do sporadic gigs across Australia, Asia, New Zealand every year. So. Like, for instance, this year, I've already got like 10 gigs in the diary for Australia, four for New Zealand. I'm playing Malaysia at the end of this tour when I get back to Oz. Maybe the Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And then the rest is mainly focused on the UK with a few. It might be like a Portugal or Hungary or Poland or Denmark or something. You know, there's like sporadic ones. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think there's a correlation between your work ethic as a kid and how that kind of yeah. experience kind of instilled this work ethic in you now? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I was always really good at dragging myself out of bed the moment the alarm went off, whether that was for school or for, you know, going to work in a shop or to go and work in a kitchen, you know, clean, washing dishes or to go and be a landscape gardener. I had to, always had this fear of calling in sick because I felt that like I was letting people down, but also because my dad never had a day off. Sense of duty almost. Yeah. So that's always been instilled in me. And, you know, like, and then like, you can't get that with everyone. And I was, and I don't know how that happened. Maybe it's something to do with my personality. Because my sister, she is the most amazing, hardworking mother for her kids and runs a jewelry business on the side and does all the cleaning and all the shopping. And, you know, she's just incredible. She does the school run and she then she does all the kids' activities. But when she was a teenager, she was pretty fucking useless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, self-motivation and getting a job and earning money just living in our own world but so you know i think you somebody everyone people find these things at different stages of their life but i luckily have had that since a young age and i still do that like the difference is is like 10 years ago even five years ago i was battling with waking up usually hungover or having had five six hours sleep with newborn babies or you know three-year-old and one-year-old five-year-old or three-year-old whatever you look at it and then trying to fit everything into a day be it gym songwriting podcast photo shoot and somehow i managed it and some people just have this different uh disposition to other people where they can 
but do all these things. Mm -hmm. It's not for everyone. Like I would. Was it for you? Well, see that, I don't know. Like I didn't even stop to ever think or work it out. Like I would party till five, 6 a.m., sleep till 11, get up, shoot a music video, then go and do a, you know, celeb juice or Graham Norton and then party again all night and then get up the next day and fly to Ibiza and do a gig and then Fucking stay hell. up all night. Well, no, we get to Ibiza and I do an interview and shoot a music video and then we stay up all night and then fly to Hungary, go play a festival there, then fly back to London, have a day off, get up, go for a four mile run, have a massage, maybe go to the studio for a few hours, do an interview, like maybe get a good sleep that night. And then the next day, another festival and it's back to Mallorca and it's like, so, you know, when artists burn out and give up or kill themselves, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's very, very mad, this life's very mm. tough. The difference is now is like, I'm treating myself like a, an athlete. You have to, I, you know, you have to go. I'm not in a competitive way with other actual professional athletes. You're just like, right, what is the strongest I can get these knees and ankles? What's the best lung capacity I can get to? Um, try and do this gig sober go to bed, come on stage at 11, have a shower, stretch, go to, have one beer, go to bed at 12. You know, just completely different way of looking at that. Now this is a job. Before it was a hobby mm. that became a job and I was riding this massive crest of success and it was just, it just wouldn't stop. It was like five, six years of relentless success, celebration, parties, creativity, traveling the world, you know, 89 countries, <laughs> headlining festivals. And it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. Don't get me wrong. If I had that headline a festival, like a big festival, I'd be, I'd be great. But I'm kind of happy now just going, right, how many gigs do I need to do this year to sort of pay the bills? Maybe 50. Right, where are they going to be? Right, I'll do 15 in Australia and New Zealand so I don't have to travel so far. I'll go and do the rest in Europe, but I'll do them in three-week blocks so I can still come back to Australia and see the kids for 10 days. And try and do them sober and try and get up after nine hours sleep feeling fresh and jump in an ice bath or go in an ice bath, not a nice bath. <laughs> oh, he loves a nice bath, he does. Um, you know what I mean? Just a completely different, kind of a reprogramming of the brain. For sure. Like, if you were to do this gig tonight, 10 years ago, you wouldn't be in a random podcast studio. Well, I probably would, but I'd probably be a bit hazy. Um, probably be cutting you off even more. <laughs> um, but I... Um, I don't. I, I love doing stuff like this because it's nice to share your story and and like, I guess if it inspires some people to either be better or to work harder or to chase their dreams. I, I don't think it matters when you start mm -hmm. this. You know, it's like I always loved the fact that Ricky Gervais was just there. He, he started making music in his twenties and then was working at a radio station, and then sort of became really famous and rich at like the age of forty. I think that's, that's fucking amazing. So it, it really, and I'm now trying to rewrite my story at 41, where I'm like, I could do this for another 10 years. And then I've had like a 30 year career. No one has a 30 year career in music. Not nowadays, everyone has like 15 seconds, you know? And even your, your first hits have like transcended ages. Like my, I told my dad, he was a 67 year old pensioner, war veteran that you were coming on. He was like, oh, I recognize that name, showed him some of your hits, he was like, oh, I know, I know that guy. Yeah. And then people that are like my little cousins and people who are like 11 years old know the exact same songs that my dad does. That's mad. And I'm like, right, well, like tonight's crowd, you'll see, you're going to come down, right? Yeah. It'll probably be, the majority of the crowd will be 16 to 20, which means they were six or 10 when my big song, you know, Kickstart, Shane's Way, Kiss Me, will be coming back, Stay Awake. 
all the songs that were one and two. I have to have that tattooed on me so I can remember them. Uh, <laughs> my top tens. But um, yeah, those kids were like six or seven when those songs came out. Or ten. That's bonkers. Because now, now it makes me think, oh, I can do this for another ten years. Dude, I used to record your songs off the telly, off the chart shows on my, <laughs> my, my phone so I could listen to them in school. I was like 12 or 13, Amazing. you know? And I'm still listening to the exact same songs and your new stuff in the gym. But you know, like the Beatles, for example, if you were to play the Beatles, you could kind of tell what era that was from. Whereas your music, you play it, you can't really yeah, tell that it's aged, mean. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that at the time I was lucky enough to work with the best of the best in terms of production. You know, Ministry like, of Sound, right? Well, Ministry of Sound were the label, but you know, like I worked with Scream, Chase's Status, mm. Calvin Harris, um, and Sub Focus, like, all these people who all make timeless music and are still about today. And I would, luckily for me, these guys were with the people making the music, you know, the production side of things. And, and a lot of my peers from that era now, you play some of their hits and they don't sound, like they're catchy, but they, they sound a bit dated. Mm -hmm. And I've been very fortunate now. So when I make something like, I've been conscious of it probably for the last five or six years. So I try and make stuff as timeless as possible, lyrically as well as sonically. Given the fact that you have transcended this social mobility journey, right, where you have more cash, more resources, hotter women, more possessions. <laughs> well, hot, I've just got one woman. <laughs> just one <laughs> to, woman. To I'm a one woman man, yeah. <laughs> that being said, how do you still create that everyday, everyman music, given the fact that your reality has changed so much? Do you ever wish that you could almost step back in the shoes of broke young Elliot? to the, feel that sense of no, because, scarcity? No, like sometimes I do transport myself to a place. That sounds like I take fucking acid. <laughs> I, don't. I transport myself to a place in my head to try and channel a certain feeling. But, you know, like I, a lot of my new songs are all written about now. Mm. But it's just a different version of now. Like, um, it's just like leaving out certain bits that most people won't relate to. I'm putting in the bits that people will relate to, but it's still being really authentic to me. Um, like when I wrote Deep a few years ago, I was going through a separation, divorce, and I'd met my new partner, and I just pretty much to show off in front of her, played this beat that I'd just been sent, the drum and bass beat by a guy called Boo, who everyone knows from the song Badadan with Jason Status. You know, he's, so two years ago, he sent me this beat. He watched me at Manchester um, Academy, and he was just like, I'm so inspired, here's a beat. I was like, this is fucking amazing. I played it to Daisy, my partner, and then just was so inspired by how I was feeling in that moment. So in love and so happy. And then just wrote this song. Like, in probably a minute, it's just coming out like this. I can't breathe, my heart's on fire. You make me feel like life's all right, even when I'm looking in the mirror. And it was just like me looking into her eyes and just writing what I felt in that moment. All right, it's not in my top five biggest songs streaming-wise, but we play it in the set, it goes off. Everyone knows it word for word. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a hit on radio. It doesn't have to be a hundred million streams. If, if I enjoy performing it and it's a, it's a good song, great song that is going to stand the test of time, then I release it and then it stays in the set. And that's kind of my ethos now because I'm writing for me and I'm writing for my fans or people I, I think would like, you know, to become a fan maybe. Um, you know, we're available, we're open all to hours for fans. Um, I don't write for radio. I don't write for Spotify. Obviously, I make tweaks occasionally. You don't though. care for streams? Well, no, I do. But I don't write for that mm. sole purpose. I write for something that I'm going to enjoy performing for the next 10 years. 
Yeah, your music is almost like a note to self, like a journal. Like, I'm sure I read somewhere that you wrote kickstarts on the way from Glasgow to London. Yeah, I was in the back of a, of a van, <laughs> been kidnapped. <laughs> I was driving it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was six Scottish men and me in the back of a van. Um, the first time. <laughs> and I was just like feeling a bit guilty about my behavior on tour and about life. And I just wrote that song on the way back, you know, seven hour drive, wrote maybe a first bit, fell asleep, went back up, wrote the next. And then recorded it the next day with Sub Focus in the studio. And then we probably spent six months refining it, getting you know the best version. And that song, I mean, yeah, it's mad because the song, the the show now is like probably do ninety minutes tonight. If if Glasgow have got the energy, yeah. but yeah, there's like eight, nine, ten songs out of twenty. I'm just like obviously, there's some people in the room who know every lyric to every song, nutters, but. It's these songs that everybody knows and they just sing the choruses and the verses and even the raps at the top of their voices. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fucking amazing. It's awesome, man. Like, if you're up there just going, this is the best job in the world, you know? Yeah, I hear Jimmy Carr um, speak about how he would rather perform than go for dinner because he doesn't go to dinner and a thousand people cheer his name. Yeah, yeah. And he talks about how he loves just, that's why he gigs like 290 days Yeah, he loves being on stage. I love being on stage, but I mean, look, Jimmy Carr doesn't have kids. <laughs> mm. oh, he does he does oh does he yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, i didn't know that um maybe they're, they're, they're really secret kids <laughs> um okay yeah but yeah i just i just want to uh do my thing man and i also enjoy so i love being on stage but i hate doing hotels and yeah. flights um i don't I'm, I'm not like a fear of flying i just i'm just so over airports like i've already like this year i've already been on like it's february and i've already been on like 20 flights and it just gets a bit like how does it feel given the fact i'm guessing you've got like a transport manager or someone that looks after you a transport manager yeah or works for the government <laughs> no, um, someone that looks after your travel and stuff yeah like i've got a travel like a sort of an executive travel agent yeah yeah i don't like i need to be here 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 and then she sends the options so it's like you know this summer there's like three or four days where i've got double gig days so might be somewhere far north at like 4 p.m. And then I've got to be somewhere else down south or an island or whatever at 10 p.m. So you need someone who's going to be able to do that for you. You can't get a train, you can't drive. And I don't fly around on private jets like all these DJs you see, you know, these Dutch and Swedish DJs. So their Instagram is just pictures of them on jets going, with like, oh, I've got vodka and some cash, you know. Was there not a DJ? I think I heard you on a podcast speak about a DJ that didn't fly to a gig because his helicopter was green instead of black. Yeah, that was a dick. Yeah, that was a guy who was a bit... I think he was just being drunk and cocky, to be honest. But he's he's become a good, good person now. Mm -hmm. I think he was just at the start of his journey of fame. But, yeah, like this summer there, you know, I I say to my manager, that's impossible, we can't do that. And he goes, no, I've spoken to Karen, Magic Karen, and she has found us a route for you to go from here to here. So, and it's like 60 minutes on stage, off stage into a waiting vehicle. It's like off stage, the doors open, slam, and then you're at a private terminal in 20 minutes and you're onto a jet, you know, and then that flies an hour somewhere and you get there and you're into another car and the doors open and then you get to the next gig. Sometimes you get police escort, you know, <laughs> doing a hundred mile an hour for a village. And then you get there and then like you'll go on stage five minutes before your set starts and then I do 75 minutes when my legs, my legs are fucked. But you don't even have time to think about what you're doing. Given that Kickstarts kind of launch your career into this new stratosphere, do you remember the first like proper pinch me moment? Like, oh, my, mat my materialism or my 
circumstances have changed from a materialistic Yeah, the very first moment I realized that was at V Festival, um, where I'd always wanted to play V Festival. It was like, you know, 10 years ago, it was like the biggest festival. Well, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the biggest festival in the world. Uh, like everyone knew about it, everyone wanted to play it. You know, apart from maybe Glastonbury, that was like the benchmark festival, like 100,000 people. And one up north, one down south, you know, you'd go up, you'd play, uh, you know, up north one day and then you'd switch the line up and then play the opposite one on the Sunday. And that was like my first sort of decent fee. You know, maybe up until that point, I've been getting between 500 pounds and a thousand pounds a gig, which doesn't go very far when you've got to pay six, seven people. It actually goes into debt. Um, and then I got paid a decent fee for that one. And I just remember packed tent, maybe seven, 8,000 people and everyone just singing that song back to me word for word. And I was like, this is the magic. This is, uh, I need to do more of these. Mm -hmm. And then I remember people saying to me, you won't, do, you won't be able to do that again. It's really tough. Like to have, you know, to kick starts with number three in the charts, but it feels like a number one because of its longevity. It was, it was up against two World Cup songs at the time and the World Cup was on um, in 2010, June 2010. But I had already written Change The Way You Kiss Me and Stay Awake. And then, and they were both number one on the next album. And I think by the time you, you know, if you have a one big song, maybe you have a career for a few years, like you have one massive song. You have two big songs, maybe you get five year career. You can have like four, five, six massive, timeless songs. I think you've got a career forever. And I kind of feel like as long as I just focus on staying fit and healthy, I can just keep on doing this mm. if I want to. But I, I realistically, I want to stop and just be a dad. I'm so fed up with the flying. I, I'd be I'd quite happily just retire now if I had the money. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I need to keep working for the next five, 10 years in order to be able to live after that. You know what I mean? When you were mentioning how Kickstarts, it was number three, you're playing V Festival. And before that, you were kind of still in debt. I can't remember the exact lessons I learned, but I had a guy called Nick Gatfield. Yeah, Nick Gatfield was, uh, signed me to... EMI or Sony? Sony, Epic Records, who are part of Sony. Yeah, yeah, I had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. quite interesting. Ago. Really interesting. He was in a band, wasn't he? Wasn't he in uh, um, Dexys with Dex that runners? Yeah, yeah, Playing trumpet or saxophone? Saxophone, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think he like signed Amy Winehouse, Radiohead and some other Yeah, he had some big, well. big acts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just learning about how like these 360 deals work and how when you sign to a label, you're essentially in debt. And I remember- Well, they the give you a load of money, but you got to pay it all off. It's mad, man. I didn't realize that. I was mean, the they case. won't look. If they drop you, it's not like you have to give the money back. But say they give you 100 grand up front, you might have to, depending on what your deal is, you might have to sell 800,000, a million records mm -hmm. before you start earning. So they give you that money, and then, but then their percentage is like 80% and yours is 20. So they've earned back what they paid you a lot quicker than you start earning again. And then, you know, so maybe. By the time you get your first check off them for 50 grand, they've maybe made you 300 or 400. So it's, it's desire, it was designed in favor of the, la the label, not the artist, yeah. where now finally deals are being restructured in favor of the artist, which is how it should be. Because also labels can run with a lot of less stuff. You know, you used to have 500 people in there because there'd be international department, music video department, and there would be- um, They'd be printing CDs. Well, yeah, there'd be, a, there'd be a fan department, you know, just like people just sending out signed posters and T-shirts to diehard fans. And then there'd be people who, you know, your, your um, 
product manager. This is like everything from the look and feel of the product to your styling, to your hair, to mm. your makeup, to none of this is needed anymore. And all these jobs are defunct. Like you need someone to pitch to Spotify and Apple. You need like a, a digital marketing expert. You need someone who's really good with uh, algorithms and, you know, cross-pollinating YouTube to TikTok and TikTok to Instagram and so on and so forth. And other than that, you don't really need anyone. So you've gone from needing 25 people on each artist project to maybe three or four. And now I, I deal with uh, this, I've got this new deal, ADA at Warner, and I deal with like three or four people. It's fucking amazing. Well, it? Because I make the music videos because the music videos aren't music videos anymore. They're reels or TikToks. And I decide how I want to look and what I want to wear because that's just artists nowadays. It's Didn't like, you spend like 40k in a music video once for Sony? Well, the, the, no, I think the most I've spent in music videos are £110,000 for Watch the Sun Come Up. Um, all the wrong places, I think, cost 80 grand. Fucking hell. Kids Again was 60 grand. <laughs> Midnight Run was 55 um, grand. These are, the labels pay for this, but I've yeah, got to yeah. recoup the cost. Well, I've got to recoup half the cost. But yeah, you don't, that's a good thing now. It's like, it doesn't need to be an international department for Sony Germany to speak to Sony <laughs> London because it's, it's, you can just DM them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, how, do, how are we going to get this to um, Germany, you know, Sony Germany? I'll just DM them. <laughs> you know, I'll send them a link. I'll send them a Dropbox. <laughs> you know, um, all these things didn't exist. Like, I come from this era where I was still, I started out 20 years ago. I was driving vinyls around the country, dropping off vinyls. Go to Birmingham to Brighton in a day to drop off 40 vinyls and I, no one would sell them and I wouldn't get any money back. And then you've got MySpace came about. You know, you connect with a fan on MySpace. They'd send you a, a direct message um, and they could listen to your unreleased demos because you could have like four songs in the MySpace music player. And then Facebook was really big with music for a bit and Twitter, obviously. And then I, I kind of, my success was all during the iTunes era, mm -hmm. which is a whole different kettle of fish to stream. And it was like, okay, fuck off CD singles. It's now just a download, 99p, 79p, whatever. It's absolutely bonkers, I'm isn't sure it? I should have had you on my I've lived through now. probably the fastest, like in terms of like how quickly music's changed. Like, you know, from vinyls, CDs, so vinyls to cassettes, that was probably what, 40 years? Mm -hmm. And then from cassettes to CDs, that changed maybe within 20 years. And then from CDs to iTunes downloads, 10 years. And then from iTunes to streaming, five years. And now we've got TikTok and so on. So it's, just, it's, it's sort of the time it's changed for the technology to switch or improve or become smaller and more compact, like 40 years, 20, 10, 5, 2, 1, and it's still changing. It's like, and I've lived through, if you look at the time scale of like buying music as a product, you know, I don't, I can't, I don't know my history on it, but I'd imagine what people were buying like vinyls back in the 1930s, 40s, yeah. or, you know, dictaphones or gramophones, sorry. So, um, I guess back then, Fans only had one way to interact with your music. Now they have like six, seven different ways to yeah, interact. Yeah, but if you think there was only one way to absorb music, it would have been like the radio or if you had a gramophone and you put a record on. And then that obviously changed to having, you know, like a, a vinyl player and a cassette player. And then a cassette and CD, cassette, CD, mini disc, cassette, CD, mini disc, input, 
you know, a mini jack Bluetooth. But in, in terms of the whole history of music, say it's like been a hundred years of people publicly consuming music in their homes or whatever. In the last 20, we've already seen most of those, mm -hmm. like the majority, like 80% of all the ways that you can listen to music in history, not including obviously live music, have all come about in the last like 15, 20 years. It's mad. And I've and my career spanned all of that, so I've just had to. Const I guess what I'm trying to say is I've just had to constantly adapt and learn new things. And like I still don't have access to my TikTok. I have a TikTok that someone runs for me because I just asked someone. I was like, I just don't have the time and energy for this. I want to using up time I need to spend on my kids, and it's using up time that I need to spend on myself. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I just think to have gone from me dropping off vinyls in a car. And to MySpace, to iTunes, you know, and, and CDs. I, my albums are always on CD and a few on vinyl. And then to get to now where I can just finish a song and it can be available the next day globally <laughs> in every country. 10 years ago, there was still a situation where we'd have a song finished and we were like, how can we make this available in the US? Or how can we make this available in Mexico? Or, or we need to make sure that people can download this or get this in Poland because there were various blocks and restrictions based on the record deal. Mm -hmm. You know, so everything wasn't available. My, most of my back catalogue wasn't available on Spotify properly until four years ago because Ministry of Sound, when I signed to them, they were anti-streaming. Mm. So all my deals that were done were for CD and iTunes only and it was all anti-streaming. So Sony bought... Ministry of Sound, four or five years ago, maybe, absorbed all their back catalog, including all of mine. And then I was I had to call them out. And it was like, by the way, you know, won't go quietly, the evolution of man. Uh, the, all these albums aren't available on Spotify anywhere in the world. They're like, oh, didn't realize, oh yeah, because there wasn't a deal for the US at the time with that one, or you know, we didn't have a Asia, Australia deal for that. So then like three years ago, I remember just putting out a message going, by the way, everyone, remember my albums that you all loved from 10 years ago with all the hits on? They're now available everywhere worldwide. So the think of the streams they were missing out on. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's, it's a bit of a clusterfuck, to be honest. Maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons for your longevity as well, is that people like kind of rediscovered your music when it became available on Spotify, perhaps. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that would be one thing I just think is you need to have natural breaks, which is why I don't tour, do my own headline tour every year now. Two years is good every two years. And maybe uh, and soon it will be every three years because, you know, like sometimes there's people who come and see you every year. And then sometimes people haven't seen you for 10 years. They might see you seven times and then not for 10 years. You never know how people are going to rediscover this stuff. It's like, is it the birth of their child makes them remember something? Is mm. it like they get married? Is it they get divorced? Is it they, you know, they're in a club and they hear you? Because um, most people, they're not finding all this stuff on Instagram. But someone like, I'll get in a taxi. Someone goes, Elliot, oh, you're, you're him, aren't you? Elliot, example, yeah, I remember you. You were on, you were on such and such. I saw you on Bake Off the other day. <laughs> and you're like, yep. Like, you're still doing the music? You're like, mate, I haven't stopped doing music. But the thing is, some people only listen to Radio 1 or only listen to Capital FM or only watch primetime television. So if you're not on those, people think you've retired. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you get a message, someone's like, oh, you, you're my favorite artist when I was at university and then I've only just rediscovered you. And you're almost like, well, I've never left. Like my Instagram's always been here. My Twitter's always been here. But if, if they don't follow you on Instagram, they forget about you or yeah. they, don't, they don't realize, they message you and go, when you come into Auckland, 
I love you. And I'm like, I played Auckland last week. <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck, I didn't know. I'm, I wasn't following you. I'm following you now. So there's still new fans to be got and other people to re-engage. Does that pain you at all? Not no. Not I haven't got time to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> when I was asking about like how the deals are structured, when Kickstarts kind of blew up, I'm guessing your immediate circumstances didn't change. I think there's a story whereby you were in your step-granddad's Still living in your stepdad. Yeah, I was place. living in the house that my my dad grew up in in Fulham, which was an ex-council house that he bought off the council, I think, at some point. And my grandmother died, my dad's mum, but her second husband, uh, my step-granddad, was living there. Mm-hmm. And he was like 97 or something. And I, w- and I was number three in the charts with Kickstarts, and I was still living with him. And it was like this house hadn't been decorated for 30 years. But it was quite good. It was quite humbling. 100%. You know what I mean? It was like I'm going on Radio One on the chart show with Reggie Yates. It's like, can you believe it? He's number three in the charts, you know, and he's off to V Festival and he's headlining, you know, the dance stage at that tomorrow. And and then we're off to I'm off to Ibiza and I've got my first Ibiza Rocks gigs. And then it's like back to Heathrow and then in a taxi to, <laughs> you know, this old fella's council house, which is quite quite cool at the time. You know, I was. I only wore whatever I was given for free because the money still hadn't started trickling through because it takes like six months to a year once you've had a hit for the money to trickle through. Yeah. So I still didn't have much cash. And I was my mum and dad and sister were all living in Australia at that point. And I was living with my 97-year-old <laughs> step-grand or something and couldn't really afford to go out anywhere and pay rent. And I was getting free Adidas, <laughs> free Fred Perry, maybe one or two other tri- like street brands. So everything I was wearing on stage or day-to-day was a freebie. And so like everybody, all my other peer group were all buying Audis and Mercedes. That's, or what, or Rolexes. Um, did you have a girlfriend at the time or were you doing? Yeah, I think I was just going for a breakup, probably which is why I wrote Chains Where You Kissed Me. But I just, yeah, it was, it was quite a weird, tough time. It was like great for so many things, but also very tough to navigate, you know, without my parents and my sister and you know, in the middle of a breakup or going through a very turbulent time in a relationship, trying it. But that gave me all the creativity. Like all those songs were written about what was going on at the time. I can't imagine someone hands you like a user manual at that moment. Like, by the way, you're going to pop off. You're going to be number one in the charts. Like this is what you do when you become famous. Like I can't imagine someone gives you that roadmap whereby you're probably just sitting with your 97 year old grandpa who doesn't relate to the stuff that you're going through at the moment. And you don't really have a teacher or a coach to kind of, push you on that pathway to superstardom yeah i was I've, i was a bit i don't feel guilty about it as such i'm a bit regretful but i'm like i look back and i wasn't that connected to my parents at the time you know i was facetime wasn't a thing mm. back then this was probably like the skype era so it was very tough to skype my parents every now and again because i didn't I was probably hungover or not in a good place so that i imagine like they're on the other side of the world in australia watching their little boy be top of the charts and be on top of the pops and playing all these festivals that's amazing but then i didn't really communicate enough with them i speak to my mom and dad nearly every day now definitely every day on text facetime them every other day I have good chats 15 minutes half an hour with my mom and dad always tell them i love them which is so important as, as you get older and i'm more detached you know from australia and my kids are there and they're there so it's good to check in i'd i'd love to have that for my kids you know if my kids were facetiming me every day i'd absolutely love it um you know, like I can imagine six, seven, eight years from now, my eldest will be 15. If he finds the energy as a 15, 16 year old to FaceTime me once a week when I'm away, that'll be amazing. But uh, the way the technology is going, you'll be like a hologram. 
Or yeah, on a exactly. VR headset or something, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to hear how good your relationship is with your parents now and how amazing it was when you were growing up. I remember there was a period of time when you kind of went, quote-unquote, off the rails where they had to have an intervention with you. Yeah, I think like 2010, maybe to 2014, 15, weren't my best years. In Either what ways? Just health-wise, um, partying, um, staying in touch with my parents, um, you know, being present for my friends. It was just, a, honestly, it was just, I don't think anyone begrudges it. I begrudges me, really. Maybe my parents do a bit, but probably over it by now. I just, that, it was, that whole, it was like four or five years roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Just like, even just thinking about it is draining. It's like really, really quite draining. Do you think you had to go through that? Yeah, of course. Like, it's, I, I don't know, it's like a sign of, um, I don't mean this in a really arrogant way, but it's kind of like greatness in terms of like, I don't mean that like I'm, I'm this great artist. I just mean like, you have to sort of soldier on mm -hmm. and pull through, you know, to get through the other side. And like so many people fail, like especially in music, it's just, just hit a point where you just can't go on anymore. Like can't create, can't tour, can't face the public, can't go on stage. Well, they don't go on tour because they can't stop drinking or they don't go on tour because they can't stop doing drugs or they don't go on tour because they can't stop cheating on their partner. I don't know what it is, but, you know, most artists are really fucked up and mental. It's not, it's not, this life's not for everyone. Were you close to any of those moments? Mm. Yes and no. I think I sort of, I dabbled, but I don't think I was a, I don't think I was a monster, mm -hmm. put it that way. <laughs> I don't think I was close to killing myself, but I, you know, accidentally, not on purpose. I've never thought about that, thank God. But um, yeah, mum, it's just, even now, like I love being on stage, but I just I just wish I was at home with the kids. I think most artists, you know, when you know, these people sort of disappear and they become these sort of hermits. And oh, what's that Robbie Williams documentary on Netflix? <laughs> he spends most of the day in his pants on his bed. And you know what? If that's a safe place for him, based on where he's been to mm -hmm. and what he's been through, that's that's where he should stay. If like you know, if your safe place is your bedroom or your home studio or your living room or your swimming pool, yeah. or you know your your garage, <laughs> your man cave, that's where you should stay, and and you should be with people who want to help protect that for you. You know, I don't really leave the house much in Australia, and I like that. And luckily, my girlfriend's cool with that because you know she'll leave the house to do whatever she wants, obviously. But I find my house a really safe place. It's lovely big space, you know, looking over the city on a hill with I can open all the windows and doors and have the breeze coming through. So you feel like you're outside anyway. And I've got a sauna and an ice bath and a swimming pool and a, a front garden with loads of herbs and vegetables and, and stuff. So it isn't and I can just get a blank canvas and paint pictures. So there isn't really much need for me to leave the house now except for essentials. Mm -hmm. And I like that lifestyle because I've spent 15 years constantly being on planes or in hotels and meeting strangers, um, meeting random people, just staying awake too long and... Um, Almost a sensation of permanence that you like. Yeah, I'm just, you know, like it's the same. I hadn't got any tattoos until three years ago and now I've got 90. And <laughs> it's sort of like feeding this new, um, new version of me, which I really like. Maybe they're just like reminders that this yeah. is a new Elliot. I don't know, but I don't really ever think these things, to be honest. I'm just, I just, you know, I I like, I'm going to on tour. I like just being in a dressing room or on the tour bus. Occasionally I'll go out for Nando's or find a gym. 
but I just like the safety and sanctity of that. I don't need to I think because I used to come on stage and then go straight out to a club or someone's house party like most nights and you just meet fucking nutters and obviously you have fun do some crazy stuff but I can't do that anymore like it scares me the thought of going out like not scared of myself and who I'll become or what I do just like I don't want to meet any more people <laughs> I can imagine you almost come like a like one thing that I'd be concerned with is becoming famous before rich or famous before excellent like I look at Love Island stars for example Oh yeah, and they people stop them in the street and they want selfies, but they don't know exactly why they want the selfie with them. But they feel a necessity to gravitate and get the selfie because of the social status they might get. And I can imagine when yeah. you were coming up, going to these parties, going to these house parties, people wanted you around because you were example. You were the the big dick on campus, right? But you weren't really getting much from them. So there's a weird like relationship yeah. um, mismatch whereby you were probably giving so much and you probably felt quite shallow for not getting that back whereas in your house yeah, but I think when you start out you just don't know what you're meant to give out or get back yeah 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 you're right but I look at like Conor McGregor now for example who's trying to make a comeback and I just want him to stay at home with his kids and never fight again yeah. I, he's my favourite UFC fighter I love the hungry McGregor but I don't want him to I just see him at these boxing matches like trying to promote his stout or whatever else and a, yeah. a, a little part of me dies inside mm. for him um, because he, he doesn't seem like he's got that safe space or he's not content in that safe space, which is his family home. Yeah, I'm like, I'm so content in the safe space. Like I love, I, I come on stage now and I'm happy to just go straight to my hotel room and it feels amazing. Whether I'm by myself or with my, my girlfriend, it's like, that's, it feels like awesome to be able to do that. I feel like to go to a, a party, you occasionally go to a house party or something in Brisbane or someone's, you know, dinner party or they've had a refurb or some shit. Just pop in for like an hour, like in at five, out at seven. And they don't even need to say goodbye to anyone because they won't remember. <laughs> um, and it's really nice to do that. And then be at home in bed by like nine or 10. I love that. And then up at five, what, what sunk them up every morning. It's amazing. I had this amazing moment in Oz uh, about maybe a month ago where I heard my eldest get up. He's nine. He was just wandering around. And it was like 4.45 a.m. I just thought, I'm going to be gone in a week two weeks, you know, to London, to Europe for a month. So I just got up and we just actually went and sat chatting. He was on his iPad and we were playing like Wordle, which is amazing. Again, you watch a little nine-year-old like with their brain of words. And you're like, what the fuck do you learn that word? <laughs> Natural um, born lyricist. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good actually. And then we just watched the sun come out and it was the most amazing sunrise, like red, orange sky. And even if he wasn't as taken by it as I was, he, I was like, look how beautiful that is, Vanny. He's like, yeah, no. <laughs> you know. Um, and then he's like, is this a word? Um, and then just going, I'm up early and I'm fresh. I'm not hungover. I'm really clear-headed. I'm really connected to my son right now. And I live in Australia and I'm looking at this amazing sunset and it's warm already. It was like 22 degrees at 5 a.m. That's like, that's, 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 that's the best drug in the world. Yeah, it's like... Incomparable to a hundred twenty thousand pound McLaren, for example, you can get that for a fraction of the cost. Just that one moment with your son. I'm glad I, I had a McLaren though, <laughs> <laughs> and a Ferrari, and a Lamborghini, and a Porsche, and a Range Rover. Yeah, I've scratched that itch, and I don't ever need to do it again. Well, I, I really believe that. Like, I'm trying to unwind that before. Hopefully, one day I get to that point, right? Um, but I want to almost renounce my material desires before I get them. Um, it seems like you need. When I see like yourself, for example, or other stars. They almost need to achieve what they think they want to realize they don't want it at all. Yeah, I mean, look, I was I was sensible in some sense, uh, sensible in some senses. 
Like, where did you take the piss? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, look, I've only recently kind of got into watches, but I don't know. I, I guess if you're sensible, that's an investment. I've only recently, last four or five years, got into art, and that's an investment. But I guess just because I'm getting divorced now, and that's not cheap, I'm just mm. kind of really pausing at the moment, focusing on what I really need. Like, I still put out feelers to get as many freebies as possible, you know, because. I like wearing certain brands and certain brands like me wearing their stuff, which is nice, but, uh, and I feel very fortunate. But I bought, I, I owned two properties before I bought a stupid car. You know, so I bought an apartment in Fulham and then I bought an Audi RS5. <laughs> and then when I had my second apartment, I got a McLaren and a Lamborghini and a Ferrari. And, you know, and they were all stupid decisions. And, I'd be better off now if I hadn't have done those, but yeah. I'm glad that I did because I've lived that. And I'm like, you know, I, I was, I think I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old in this amazing penthouse apartment in London overlooking the Thames right on the water. And, under, and in the garage downstairs, a Range Rover, a yellow McLaren, a black Lamborghini Murcielago LP640 and a, a blue uh, Cayman GT4. And yes, it felt amazing. And yes, I only really drove the McLaren because um, <laughs> the Lamborghini was a fucking nightmare to start and the Porsche, the GT4 wouldn't go over any speed bumps and it was sitting in traffic with a manual, just get fucking repetitive strain on my left Achilles but, uh, <laughs> from the clutch. You know what I mean? But am I glad I did it? Yes. Would I do it again? No. And now you realize it's just like, you know, you get divorced and it's like, okay, that was a lovely time. But the real thing now is just being, what, what am I happiest doing and what's best for the kids? And then you just realize that health and family is more important than money and cars and all these things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, when, when you talk about that, one of the things I wanted to ask you about or just kind of compliment you for, and it's only something I, I remember seeing on the TV then and then re-watching it recently in preparation for this and it was your Lorraine Kelly interview. Oh, yeah. When you unfortunately had a miscarriage with yeah. your ex-wife. And I was born a twin, but my twin didn't make it through. Okay. And growing up, my mum sadly passed away, but I always felt sorry for my mum. And then my dad's a kind of tough-nosed veteran. And then yeah, watching yeah. your interview just recently, I thought to myself, I've never spoken to my dad once about what it was like for him to lose. Yeah, yeah. Men just don't. Men just don't. The do reception it. was mad that you got for that. I was unbelievable. I, I we had like three thousand DMs and messages on Twitter, and I, I didn't. I replied to maybe three hundred. So it was sad I couldn't reply to them all. And some people don't expect to reply. They just want to say thank you. Or but the conversations people haven't had. There's still conversations I want to have with my dad. You know, he's getting way better. And we're both getting really, really good at communicating. And there'd be a time and a place for them, you know. But we don't get a lot of alone time. There's obviously stuff I want to ask my mom as well. But I think men in general just hold back a lot more things. Yeah. And my mum's always been really good at sharing absolutely everything. And I think that's why I'm so good at sharing. My dad's not so good at sharing his, especially his past and upbringing, but we're getting better, definitely. One of my favorite conversations I've heard you have with your dad, not in person, but on the internet, of course, and was when I think you got top 10. He said, oh, let me know when you get top one. Yeah, no, I was like, I've got top 40. And he went, let me know when you've got top 10. I was like, I've got top 10. He was like, let me know get number one. I was like, I've got number one. He was like, we'll get another one. I was like, I've got another one. He was like, let me know when you're number one in Sweden. <laughs> so that was a true conversation. Like, my dad's like that, but I think his dad was a bit like that to him as well. It's like, it's encouraging, but it's very slightly bordering on bullying. <laughs> but it's also meant when, in the best way possible. I'm going to end up on a really annoying question, mate, that you must get so frustrated answering. 
But I just want to ask about the Nando Skank. The uh, Nando Skank? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Like, that was pre-Big Ed Sheeran, right? He was playing it the waterfront in Norwich. 2008? 2008, yeah. Can you give some context? Because maybe some of the listeners might be so too. 2000 and, so, yeah, Nando Skank, me and Ed Sheeran, out backstage at the Norwich waterfront venue. I think 2008. I had just lost my record deal with Mike Skinner and the Beats, which was part of Warner. And I was thinking of quitting. And I was kind of working, dabbling back in TV and editing again. Um, but I had this following going. And I had put out, I think, a track called Hooligans, which had done pretty well. Like Zane Lowe had played it on Radio 1. It was like my first foray into dance music. So we decided to put another tour on. Um, it was like 15 gigs. And I was going around the van, not two of us. So like you'd stay in travel lodges and stuff. And there'd be like six or seven of us in a van. And I've messaged Ed Sheeran on Twitter. So I had 30, 40,000 followers. Ed maybe had seven, 8,000 followers. <laughs> and I've invited him to come and support me. And at this point, he'd already done a few support gigs. So it's not like I discovered him. He'd done like Just Jack or he'd been on tour. He'd already done maybe four or 500 gigs. Like, because he'd been gigging since he was like 14, the nutter. <laughs> And I've invited him to come on tour. And I think he did four or five gigs on that tour. And the first night was in Norwich at Waterfront. And as a tour diary, I've got someone to film it on like a little GoPro. And I just said, what should we do? And he said, well, let's just go out the back and have a freestyle about chicken. <laughs> and I think I was drinking a, a rum and coke and he had a beer maybe. And we both looked absolutely disheveled and a bit mental. And he just started playing guitar and we just started freestyling about chicken. Um, and then we stayed in touch and he supported me on a few more tours. And then I think by the time, you know, there was this sort of cross section, maybe two years later, which was about the time I was selling out, say, Shepherd's Bush Empire in London, like two nights in a row, like three, three and a half thousand, four thousand tickets. He was selling out maybe Coco in Camden, fifteen hundred tickets. I was maybe on hundred uh, thousand followers or something like that. And he was, no, probably, but it's a good perspective. No, I was probably on like 500,000 followers. He was on like 100,000. And then a few months later, he overtook me on followers. It was like, his. it just went, he's always been chipping away, but it just went like that. And then the last time we were ever kind of on an even sort of playing field was, I released Stay Awake, which was number one, I think in August 2011. And he released You Need Me, I Don't Need You. And that was number three. Moves Like Jagger was number two. Um, and I'd beat moves like Jagger to number one by about 100 downloads. It was the closest number one, number two in a decade. And that was the last time I was number one, he was number three in the charts. And then within six months of that, he was number one in America and selling out venues all over the world. And he overtook me on everything. I know I'm not, and I so he should, but I'm just trying to put it in perspective where my career was and his career was when we did the Nando skank. Was there not a conversation whereby he said, if I ever make it to Wembley, I'll let you support me or something? Yeah, like? I said to him that day in Norwich, I gave him a bottle of whiskey. Um, JD, right? JD. And I wrote on it, please let me support you when I, when you play stadiums. And that was, and, and do you know what's mental? Four, no, five years later, he was playing stadiums. No one does that, man. It's fucking mental, like from supporting me <laughs> in Norwich to 600 people to three nights at Wembley. That is just like, that's some trajectory done. Like, but 
he embodied it then. He didn't mention to me that he wanted to play stadiums. I could just see it in him. I'm sure he, in his head he wanted to play stadiums because he said he wanted to play stadiums since he was 12 or something. You know what I mean? He always had a he had a plan about what albums to put out, in what order, what lyrics he was going to do, what songs, and when he was going to do arenas, when he was going to do stadiums, when he was going to do America. Everything he said that I set out to do came true. And I think when you play guitar as well as him, write songs as well as him, sing as well as him, it's entirely possible. I think from my point of view, it was just like, I don't think I'm the best singer in the world. I don't play instruments on stage. And like I'm happy with everything I set out to do. And I've exceeded everything I set out to do. He's just on a different ballpark. He's now trying to outdo himself because he can only compete with himself. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a pretty phenomenal fella. And yeah, he invited me to come play Wembley. And I was like, oh yeah. And he went, you've forgotten, haven't you? I went, yeah. He was like, yeah, you gave you watched me once in Norwich. I watched this performance and we were all stood there, like me, my photographer, tour manager, DJ, just watching him going, this guy is unbelievable. And the crowd were transfixed. And he just, he did that wherever he went. He did like 200 shows a year, just blowing everyone away, whether he was the act, main act or the support act. Pretty inspiring. It's amazing, man. And we were sat in my sauna in Australia in, I think when he was on tour in Australia, maybe uh, it was last year, whenever he was doing his Australia tour. Um, maybe October or something. I can't remember. But um, those conversations must be well. You and Ed in the sauna, like, look. Well, yeah, he just messed. So he was playing the Suncorp Stadium which is two minutes from my house, two minute drive. So I was like, just come around see the kids and we'll have a sauna, an ice bath. He was like, oh, I don't know, I'm knackered, man. I've just been to a, a hospital and seen a load of dying kids. I feel really depleted. I just want to have a glass of wine and go on stage. So like, come and have a sauna, ice bath, I'll sort you out. He said, all right, I trust you. He, security dropped him off at my house. It was so weird. My kids were just there eating dinner and Ed just walks in the front door and he's just like, hey. And Evando, my nine-year-old, just goes, hey, Ed. And he's just on his iPad going. <laughs> and then me and Ed are just sat there chatting. And my six-year-old's just on the other side of the room, not even paying attention, completely oblivious. And then I'm like, do you want a picture? Any. Any is my six-year-old. Any, get in a picture of Evando. Like, no. Get in a picture with Ed. <laughs> no, Dad, I don't want to. I was like, all right. And then me and Ed went and had a sauna and a really nice live chat and... And, and he had a nice bath and it really rejuvenated. And then he just sort of, I fed him and then he went and jumped in a car and went to the stadium again. <laughs> but that's lovely that he's so, you know, he hasn't changed at all. He's amazing. I love like, that. Anything that's changed, he doesn't have a phone now, which is which he shouldn't have. But it's lovely to think I've known him like 10 years and he can play a stadium, my local stadium in Australia, 78,000 people and just popped to my house for dinner by my himself. Kids. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, when he played there four years ago, I think he walked from my house to the stadium. Because <laughs> no one's expecting Ed Sheeran to arrive at the stadium because yeah, yeah, yeah. he's visited his mate next door. <laughs> arrive on foot. But yeah, he's pretty, he's something special, but yeah. And they'd probably be confused to see such a ginger outside in the Australian heat as well. There's quite a lot of gingers in Australia. Uh, I can only say that as a proud ginger myself. Yeah, you should be proud. <laughs> mate, I've got one more question to ask you. I hear you on podcasts speak about how Often at times where you're on podcasts, you say things for the first time or feel things for the first time or think, think things through for the first time that you should probably ask yourself before. Yeah. If I were to ask you, what question would you want me to ask you and why? What would that be? Oh, God. Tough question. I don't know. I find these, I find these things so much easier where it's just like, what's your favourite film? <laughs> <laughs> what's your favourite film? I don't know. I've got top five probably of like Leon, Empire Strikes Back. Aliens, um, King of New York, 
um, and Donnie Darko. Yeah, City of God. Um, Blade Runner 2049. I just, yeah, they're all tattooed on me. If I forget, I just look at my arms. They're all all over my legs and back. That's <laughs> Getting old, mate. I just can't, <laughs> can't remember what films I like, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know, mate. Like, I just, yeah, I sometimes do podcasts and I start answering something. It's almost like, oh, he's, that's a really good answer. He's prepared that. And I'm like, no, I've just thought of that then. You've asked me a really important life question that I've only just realized. But that's good. I'm not opening this, by the way. I'll take it to the venue, awesome. maybe, and have it before I go on for some extra energy. But Dude, this was so much fun. Thank you for coming on. Scan your can. <laughs> Fucking get in. Scan your can. That's, that's so good. You wouldn't get the, the, the UK, the, the London version. Has, definitely does please that, recycle though. your can, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mate, this is so much fun. Let's end on scan your can. <laughs> no, thanks for having me, man. And that was the example episode, 16 minutes with one of my heroes. That was loose. I really, really enjoyed that. Listening to it back and editing it was such a privilege. Sometimes I pinch myself of the opportunities that this pod affords me. And that's thanks to you. I want to say thank you for making this happen. And thank you, Elliot, aka Example, for stopping by. And thank you, Vibe and Zero Gravity, for sponsoring this episode. If you love this one, give it a thumbs up. Give it a review. Hit subscribe. Hit follow. Send me a message. You know what to do. I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>